Okay, we will uh, make a start tonight. Um, everybody should have a couple of pages. Actually, uh, yeah, two pages. Uh, one is a letter uh, from the Roman governor Pliny uh, to the emperor at the time, Roman, uh, Trajan. And the other is a count from North Africa of an African martyr named Perpetua. So I'm got, I've got some preliminary uh, things I want to talk mention scripture readings uh, regarding persecution, and then we're going to look at these two texts as it relates to the subject of persecution in the Roman Empire in the first uh, second century AD. Okay, well, let's, uh, let me open our time in a word of uh, prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of this night and for the privilege and freedom uh, to gather like this. Uh, as we think of uh, this issue of, and subject of persecution, we are conscious that there are many in this world of ours at this present time who could not gather uh, with such freedom and liberty. And we thank you for what you have given us, uh, unmerited on our part. Uh, we pray for those who are in situations of danger, and fear uh, of persecution, that you would be with them, that you would prove yourself as their great God, a strength and comfort. And bless our time this night. Uh, may it be profitable in every way and glorifying to your name, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you have a, a Bible, um, if not, just listen. Um, in the Gospel of John, in what's known as the Farewell Discourse, that's the that long passage running from John 14 through 16 that is unique to the Gospel of John, in which our Lord gives teaching uh, prior to the, his arrest and his own persecution and death. He says this in John 15 and verse 18, all, going all the way down to 25. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this has happened, so the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Turn also to Second Timothy. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. And these, uh, these verses, I've got three texts, are representative of quite a number of verses that speak about persecution. Uh, let me go back to verse 10 to give context. 2 Timothy 3.10. You have followed me, Paul says to Timothy, my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, 
Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, I believe I mentioned last day in the closing remark that every chapter in 1 Peter, of course the original didn't have chapters, but every chapter in 1 Peter touches this theme. And uh, this is the, probably the central theme, uh, apart from one in chapter 2. Dear friends, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, running, reading through 16. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Now, you can sense that, uh, especially in the last passage, that persecution, contrary to the way we normally think, persecution means violence against the body of the believer, um, at least in the context of Christian persecution, that this last passage is really not speaking so much as violence, but it's speaking of uh, ostracism, ridicule, mockery. Um, all of that falls under the category. And um, behind it all, Jesus specifies there really is hatred. And um, one of the things we're going to ask tonight is the question, why did, why did the Roman state persecute the early church? Uh, Jesus has already answered it in one reason. Uh, there is no reason. Um, but the Romans did believe they had reasons. And uh, the early church, uh, beginning with the book of Acts, uh, you see it in the book of Acts, the uh, persecution of the church. Paul actually alludes to this in, this in the Second Timothy passage. He talks about sufferings in Antioch, Lystra, and Iconium. Um, he's actually referring back to when Timothy and Paul first met. It's in Acts uh, chapters uh, 14 uh, through uh, Acts 14 and 16. And uh, Paul had been actually stoned, physically stoned, and left for dead. And uh, in Pisidian Antioch, he went on to uh, Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. And it's in that context he meets uh, Timothy. And Paul's recalling Timothy's remembrance of that. At this point, probably, at that point, probably 20, 20 years um, or more, maybe, well, maybe a bit less, about 20 years or so. And... Um, uh, beginning in the book of Acts, running all the way through Acts, and then into the letters that I think are written after the end of Acts. First, Second Timothy, Second Timothy passage we read. Uh, First Peter, um, the book of Revelation, uh, where we have the account of Antipas, uh, Revelation two thirteen, in the city of Pergamum, um, in what is now modern Turkey, uh, who was our Lord's faithful witness unto death. And um, the word witness there is the Greek word martis, M-A-R-T-Y-S, is the way you would render that word into English. Um, the plural of martis is materes, M-A-R-T-Y-R-E-S. And if you're able to catch all that, 
you know, drop off the ES, which is the inflected ending. English is not an inflected language, as you know. Well, maybe you don't know, but it's not an inflected language. Uh, we don't do things on the end of words to indicate their role in a sentence. Uh, in Greek and Latin and German, uh, these are the languages I know, French doesn't really do it, uh, like English. Uh, they do things on the end of words. Uh, you add things, and uh, if you drop off materes, the ES, you've got martyr. Now, martis, the word martyr, uh, that we use the word martyr, the, the, the Greek word martis, is the, uh, originally meant the idea of a, a witness, a person who has first-hand evidence. So, let's say you're in a store, and somebody comes in, and I hope this doesn't happen to you. This is horrifying to think. Somebody comes in to rob the store. And uh, let's say they don't have a weapon, but whatever. They, uh, you get a good eye view of them. And if that person gets nabbed and uh, caught by the police at a subsequent point, you may be brought in as a matisse. That's the, the Greek under, word, uh, understanding of the word. It's a legal term. And it's somebody who's first-hand evidence. Uh, Jesus uses the word in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my materes, plural, uh, to, in Jerusalem, uh, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The word does not mean what we were mean by the word martyr there. It means this broad idea, you will be my witnesses. And he's talking, about the, he's talking to the apostles who are actually in the presence of the risen Christ. The great thing that they bear witness to in the book of Acts, which we are a little at fault here uh, in this regard, the great thing they bear witness to is the resurrection. And uh, I'm, well, I wouldn't bet on it, but most, most years we go from Easter to Easter without preaching on the resurrection. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. The resurrection, we, we, of course we talk about the resurrection Easter Sunday. And then do we ever preach on it the rest of the year? But that's the great theme in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Christ is risen from the dead. And uh, the reason why you and I are Christians is because we have put our faith in the apostolic witness. It's not because of that little ditty. I don't know if you know that. I'm sure you know that little ditty. You know, I believe because he lives within my heart. Uh, that is true in one sense. But the real, the bedrock is he was seen by the twelve, by uh, the Apostle Paul, by the 500, etc. And we have put our faith in the apostolic witness as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. Um, that's what, that, you will be my witnesses. But by the time you get to the end of the New Testament, the word matisse has become narrowed to a technical term. Uh, this happens to language, right? So words change their meaning. Um, so uh, there is a movie. This is a, comes to my mind. It probably is not the best example. 19, I think it's around 1932-33. It's just as they make the transition from silent movies to talkies. And it's... Uh, uh, called the gay, the gay divorce, the gay divorcee, and I'm quite certain when you hear that word "gay," you think one thing. But the word was a word you would regularly use in normal language. You know, if in the 1940s, if you went to Florida um, or California on a holiday, you write right back saying, "We're having a gay time." I'm quite certain you would not write that at all today because the word has become, it's become a 
technical term in one sense. We've, lo we've lost the possibility of using that word in polite public discourse without being completely misunderstood. Oh, you're talking about that. Um, certain words, you know, that's the way words go, and I'm not bothered by that. I am bothered by the way the word martyr is used. Um, so, for instance, on the, in the af immediate aftermath of the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York City, the 19 men who were involved in that destruction were described as martyrs for Islam. No, no, no. <laughs> From my point of view, as a Christian historian, that is a misuse of that term. Yeah, I know, I, I know I can't stop the journalists using it and press using it, but it is a complete misuse of the term. It is a term, that word, as a technical term, developed in Christian circles to identify men and women who died for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died praying for their enemies, who didn't die wreaking havoc and vengeance and death on other human beings. No, let, we need to name a spade a spade. Those men were terrorists. But I know it's not going to change the way this is, the word is used. But for us as Christians, there are certain words that are very, very important. And the word martyr is a very important word. And as you go through those first few centuries, up until the toleration of Christianity, and we'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the, our time together, and then um, the, the, we'll talk a little bit about when this persecution begins of the Roman state um, in a minute. But in those 250 years between roughly the 60s uh, AD and 310, it's 311 when Christianity is declared legal and uh, uh, an edict passed in 313 that gives Christian, uh, Christians toleration. Um, the word martyr becomes a very important term in the church. The martyrs are a body of believers who help the church understand who she is. And uh, the martyr is a gift of the Spirit to the church. And um, if you're thinking, man, where on earth does he get that from? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where Paul is talking about the gifts in a quite a different context. But he's, he's trying to argue that there are a variety of gifts in the body of Christ. Um, and some of the Corinthians in the church at Corinth think that speaking in tongues is the gift that identifies you as a spiritual person. And Paul says this as he begins to, to try to show them that there's something more important to gifts, namely love. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, verse 1, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he's responding to the Corinthians. Um, okay, so you, you, have, you have tongues, but if you use that gift, speaking in tongues, uh, that is fo uh, foreign languages that you haven't learned. If you use that gift in an unloving way, it's useless. You're, you might as well be a clanging gong or noisy cymbal. If I have the gift, now notice he's going to up the ante. If I have the gift of prophecy, and Paul is very appreciative of prophecy, because prophecy is a teaching gift. Um, prophecy is not simply prediction of the future, but it's got to do with the fourth fourth. Forth telling the word of God. Not foretelling always, but forth telling. Um, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, um, in other words, you have insight into the great purposes of God. And if I have all faith, 
Such faith that I can move mountains. But don't have love. I'm, you're a big fat zero. He doesn't, that's my Michael Haken colloquial translation. I am nothing. But then notice he, he's upping the ante each time. If I give away all my possessions, the gift of giving, which is a gift of uh, hospitality in a sense, and if I give over my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And uh, the, the last verse indicates that there is a gift of martyrdom. And um, uh, there is a question that sometimes comes up in, in circles today uh, from time to time. And that is, do you believe in the gifts of the Spirit? And have the gifts ceased? And I think it's the wrong question in some ways. Um, because everybody believes certain gifts have ceased. You have to. The gift of apostle has ceased. That is that foundational individual who is responsible for the writing down, the inscripturation of divine revelation that is foundational to all churches. That gift has ceased. Even if you're a full-blown, hearty uh, defender of all the gifts as a Pentecostal slash charismatic, uh, you don't believe that apostles exist today. Otherwise, you'd be adding revelation to the scriptures. And Pentecostals, Charismatics, don't do that. So everybody believes to some extent that the gifts have ceased. Um, on the other hand, does God still work remarkable things? Yes. Uh, do, that, do they fall under the category of gifts, uh, etc.? So the, the question to my mind is a bit wrongly uh, phrased. It's also very evident that the Spirit gives gifts to certain churches that he doesn't give to others. So, this church was founded, I should know this, because I wrote the history, or helped to write the history, uh, 40 years ago, right? 50! <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I have problem with my math, right? So remember that. Haken and math don't go together. Um, so, 50 years ago, um, have we had any martyrs in this church? No. In fact, uh, you'd probably have to hunt pretty far and wide in Fellowship Baptist churches to find any. Um, there is a man named Tom Dever who is a member of Ford Baptist Church uh, on Ford uh, Avenue in, in Toronto who was martyred. And if you go into the main sanctuary... There is a plaque to Tom Dever, martyred in 1936 in Ethiopia by Ethiopian tribesmen. Um, I, have a, I had a friend named Chip Stam. He was the head of the music department at Southern. His great aunt and uncle, uh, the Stams, were martyred by Chinese communists in the 1930s. But in the West, we haven't experienced persecution, and it's a gift that the Spirit hasn't given to the churches in the West. But there are churches around the world, you well, I hope you well know, um, where martyrdom is an ever-present reality. Uh, one thinks of churches in uh, various parts of the Muslim world, um, China, Korea, etc. Um so martyrdom is a gift of the Spirit. The early church saw it that way. It, they saw the martyr as central to their existence. 
the martyr helped the early church define who she was. In some ways, the, the boundary between the church and the world ran through the very body of the martyr. Because the martyr, very few Christians were called to martyrdom in the early church. It's very easy to think of thousands upon thousands. The reality is that probably the percentage is very small. But there was that ever-present reality of dying as a martyr. When you are baptized as a believer and entered into a church in, the, in those early congregations, you had to reckon with the fact that you might die as a martyr. I'm quite certain none of you, when you were baptized, I remember my baptism quite vividly uh, at Stanley Avenue Baptist Church on April the 6th, uh, 1974. And um, uh, I, don't, I, I'm, I know I wasn't thinking, this might end up getting martyred. I mean, that never entered my mind once. But it would have entered your mind if you had been an early Christian because martyrdom was a reality. As we'll see, um, it wasn't an ongoing reality all the time. In fact, there is an occasion, for instance, where the great Alexandrian preacher Origen, around the year uh, 240, is uh, expositing the Gospel of Matthew, and he's, hitting, he's touching on those passages where Jesus is talking in the end times and talking about brother will betray brother, and etc., and persecution. And he turns to the congregation and he says, uh, Now I know some of you young men and women have, this is all ancient history to you, and you have not, we have not gone through persecution for 35, 40 years. But trust me, we may well go through it again. And within the space of uh, three or four years, Origen was arrested, uh, tortured, so most of the bones of his body were broken. And he died, he was released from prison. He didn't die technically as a martyr. He died as what the church called a confessor. He confessed the faith, but didn't die in martyrdom. And he was right, Christians did die. And so that was an ongoing reality that we never have to reckon with. And that's why this word, as I said, was, would have been absolutely vital to the early church. They remembered their martyrs. Uh, uh, Perpetua, who we'll talk about this uh, at the end of our time, um, she was martyred in the year 202 on a specific date. And uh, 200 years later, Augustine, on that date, would regularly preach a sermon that touched on Perpetua's memory. The martyrs become very, very important to the church because they remind the church that there is something that is more valuable than life. The most valuable thing we have is life, right? If your house catches fire, um, you make sure everybody's out, and you're not going back in to grab all kinds of other stuff. You get out yourself if the fire is going to consume the house. Uh, you might grab your pets. I hope you grab your pets. Uh, but you save yourself. You save the lives of other human beings. Because life, we can replace everything else. But your life is your most valuable thing. But there is in the Christian faith something more valuable than your life itself. That is fidelity and integrity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And loyalty to him. And we, we hope and pray, although it is the lot of some around the world, we hope and pray this will never come to our lot here in Ontario. Um that we, we would ever be forced to have to make that decision. It's horrifying. 
And we'll see it. it the, 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 the trauma it brings into families, etc. So, uh, when did the uh, Roman state become a persecutor of the church? Well, you might say, oh, all the way back when they crucified our Lord. But if you go through the uh, New Testament account, Pilate's a very reluctant persecutor. He really, he really doesn't want to get involved in this. This is a Jewish thing, but the Jewish leaders don't have the power to execute. Uh, if they did an execution, it would have to be you know, on the side and stoning and etc. And they want to involve the Roman state, and he's reluctant. And in fact, all the way through the book of Acts, Luke is trying to show us, or at least to show, show his own generation, that the Romans, that Christianity is not a threat to the Roman state. And so a number of the Romans who are depicted in the book of Acts, who are significant figures, are open to Christianity or willing to listen to Christianity. Like Gallio, for instance, in Corinth. Uh, Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the area that uh, uh, occupies part of the mainland of Greece and the area of Corinth. We talked about Corinth, if you remember that little uh, isthmus. And uh, uh, in Acts 18, the Jews, no political power, but they want to get rid of Paul. They're fed up with him. He's actually taken up residence in a house right next door to the synagogue. And you can, you can get in your mind's eye, you can see Paul on Saturdays standing outside the synagogue as Jewish people are going in, trying to encourage them to come to the house of Titius Justice next door, who's believed. And um, we want this guy out of the city. So they go to Gallio and tell him, look, this guy is breaking the law. Namely, your law, your Roman law. And uh, Gallio listens to them. And um, as far as he's concerned, it's just a bunch of Jews. You know, this, Jew, this group of Jews are angry at this other Jew. This Jew says somebody called Jesus is a Christos. These Jews deny it. It's just a matter of your laws, your words. I'm paraphrasing Acts 18. And he kicks them all out. And what Luke is showing us by that is that the Roman, the Roman state recognizes the reasonableness of Christianity and is not willing to participate in the persecution levied or raised by the synagogue. And uh, that's the way it ends. Paul, at the end of uh, the book of Acts, under house arrest, all the Jews in Rome who want to come to the house, it's known where he is, uh, can come. He's preaching. And the last word of the book of Acts is without hindrance. It's an adverb. And unlike English, which um, English has very particular rules about how you do a sentence, right? Uh, so if somebody doesn't do a sentence with the proper word order, uh, they either can't speak our language perfectly or well, or it's poetic, right? Um, because Allison couldn't come tonight, I went to Milestones to have dinner, and I was reading an article about a new book of poetry. I love poetry. Uh, a man I've never read, a man named Joseph uh, Bottom, B-O-T-T-U-M, uh, who's released his second book of poetry, and it's absolutely fabulous. And, but he does interesting things with word order, right? That's what we do in poetry. Um, Greek is not like that. Greek, because it's inflected and the word tells you by its ending the role it plays in the sentence, you can put words in a variety of places, but there are certain things even then you don't do. And one of the things you don't do in Greek is end a sentence with an adverb. 
in English, I was always taught, I'm now breaking this rule. When I was growing up, I was always taught, you never begin a sentence with and or because. I don't begin sentences with because, but I am doing it with and. And I wince every time I do it, but everybody else is doing it, so. Uh, something changed. I mean, yeah, that's cool. I mean, we can change, right? There's, maybe there, there must be real rules why you don't begin. I, I can understand why, maybe, but anyway. Uh, English is very particular with the way we write out sentences. Greek, no. But you don't end a sentence with an adverb in Greek. And you don't end a book with an adverb, but that's what Luke does. It's very bad Greek style. It would give the impression Luke wasn't a native Greek speaker, which he is. Um, if you know Greek well enough and you go through the New Testament, uh, for instance, the book of Mark doesn't sound like a Greek writer. It sounds like a person thinking in Aramaic, writing Greek. And some of the things he does with the Greek, are, they'd be horrifying to a really good Greek speaker. And, uh, but Luke is a great Greek. He's a native Greek. It's his mother tongue. But he ends this, the book with an adverb because he wants to make a point. Here's Paul, right in the heart of the Roman Empire, preaching with nothing to hinder him, and the Roman state is letting him do it. Well, that's around the year 60-61. Within three years, that would change. In July of 64, um, a fire breaks out in downtown Rome. Uh, I don't know what you think of when you think of the ancient city of Rome. You probably think of the marble you've seen maybe on pictures, or you've been to Rome. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the core of the city is absolutely gorgeous with the, what has remained after 2,000 years, even then, uh, despite the ravages of time. But that's not the Rome of this world. Yeah, that's the downtown, those beautiful temples uh, in terms of beauty of the architecture. I'm not talking the beauty of what they served. Uh, but most of Rome were these kind of dumpy, Apartment buildings, three or four stories high, made out of wood. Uh, the Romans hadn't invented the chimney, so they didn't know how to have fires and extract them up, get the, 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 the smoke out. But people had fires in these three or four stories. They were cooking. They're fire traps. And uh, historians now identified that it was probably at a bakery that a fire broke out on the night of the 17th of July, going into the, 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 the morning of the 18th of July. And it was a windy night that night, very windy, winds coming off the uh, Mediterranean, fanned the flames of a fire that broke out, probably in a bakery. The bakery was probably for takeout. Uh, we're not the first people to have takeout. The Romans had takeout, or if you're British, takeaway. Um, uh, because you would need takeaway food for when you went to the amphitheater or the circus, actually the circus, the amphitheater was yet not yet to be built. You know, you're watching those great chariot races. You're there all day. Um, and a fire broke out in one of these bakeries that would provide takeaway food. And within a day or two, the Roman fire brigade was primitive. And the only way they could eventually get it under control was to burn an area, right? A, you burn, fire doesn't burn over an area that's already burnt, right? So you'd burn an area as a break, as a break, and the fire would hit that and peter out, which it did. By that point, somewhere between a third and half the city, million people, had been burned. Then a second fire breaks out on the property of the head of the Praetorian Guard, 
uh, an odious man, and I'm doing a particular uh, 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 a special play on words because his name was Ophonius, F-O-N-I-U-S, Ophonius the odious, uh, Ophonius Tigellinus. He was a horse salesman. Uh, the emperor Nero had met him at, at the uh, Roman uh, circus, took a liking to the guy. He was a he wasn't aristocracy at all, and made him the head of the Praetorian Guard and the Secret Service in Rome. And the guy was as nuts as Nero. It's amazing to me that when you've got a nutter leaving a country, he attracts other nutters. And I know it's kind of funny, but God forbid we ever live under these people. Um, like Hitler. If you look at the people around Hitler, like Goering and Himmler uh, and all these characters, I mean, they're all complete psychopaths and they all fight each other and it's horrifying. Well, Ophodius Tigellinus was a complete psycho. And he and Nero run a reign of terror in Rome. And uh, Tigellinus has actually, he's got spies even in public toilets. So you had to be wary if you went to a public toilet and you'd, man, that Nero's a complete nutter. You'd get a knock at the door that night and you'd, be, you'd disappear. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Nero wasn't in Rome at the time. When the fire breaks out, he comes back to Rome. And then a second fire breaks out and destroys another third of the city. So somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the city is burned to a crisp. And then some people start to remember that Nero used to say publicly, you know, Rome is a squalid dump. I'd like to level the whole thing, rebuild the whole thing out of marble. I don't know how he's going to afford that. And name it after myself, you know, Nero instead of Roma. Well, not a good thing to have said publicly because the rumor starts to go around, Nero started the fire. And I think most historians, oh, the historians are now doing revision. You know, Nero, the, the, the standard view was based on Roman historiography, Roman historians, the standard view was Nero started the second fire. Or Nero simply started the fire. We now have historians coming along and say, no, no, all of that stuff's not right. All those Roman historians were wrong. They just didn't like Nero. He actually was quite a good guy, um, and they're revising the story. But I, for me, the standard story is still the best. It explains the, all the evidence we've got is that Nero was accused of starting the fire. And he needs a scapegoat. And according to the Roman historian Tacitus, he arrested a number of Christians. And on their confession, arrested a few more. Numbers of them he sewed up in wild uh, in the animal and uh, skins of wild animals and savaged them to death by dogs, and the others he crucified and burned them at the same time so they could serve as torches. And uh, that's AD 64. From that point on, Christianity is illegal, and the Roman state is at war with the church, and that war will last from 64 AD all the way down to 311, 312. Uh, 250 years, that's far longer than Canada's been a nation. Can you imagine that? If you think about, let's say you're living in the year 300. Um, thinking back at this point, uh, 240 years. That would take us back to, <laughs> I shouldn't do this math. <laughs> so <we're laughs> this is the year 2023. Well, let's say, let's, let, me, let me do it. Let's say 223 years. So. That's all the way back to 1800, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I can't do the, the 40, 50, so... Yeah, all the way back to 1800. 
and even earlier. I mean, Ontario, there, was, there were hardly any European settlers in Ontario at that point. That whole history, persecution, you can imagine. And um, we have a number of texts of martyrs, and so we're going to read one. There's about 40 to 50 original, fairly uh, trustworthy texts. And then, but before that, I want to read a letter with you, uh, written by a Roman governor from a Roman standpoint of what he was doing and why he was doing it. And that's Pliny. Uh, Pliny, uh, the letter uh, 1096 to the Emperor Trajan. Um, before Pliny died, he, he drew up all his letters in books and had them published, um, partly for probably reasons of vanity, uh, partly also for reasons of uh, he believed his style of writing was exquisite, and it is, um, and could serve as a guide to young students of Latin. And believe it or not, it has down to the 1960s. Anybody here take Latin in high school? I don't know if you read any Pliny. You probably read Caesar, uh, Cicero, but Pliny often would be read as well. And um, Pliny was born in the year 69. We don't know when he died. And um, he was um, um, upper middle class, and uh, he made a lot of money and decided to buy his way into the aristocracy, which he did. Um, you could pay, uh, it's a huge sum of money, and I'm not sure the equ equivalent in Canadian dollars, but a huge sum of money could get you into the aristocracy, which he did, which made him a member of the Senate. Um, under the uh, early reign, he was a lawyer by training, um, so that's interesting, as we'll, it'll come up in the text. And also, he was um, he was the he was in charge of the public works of water coming into Rome and sewage going out of Rome. So a million people, it's a lot of water, uh, millions of gallons of water each day. The Romans had built eleven to twelve aqueducts bringing water in from various hill regions, springs, etc. Absolutely marvel. It's a marvel of what they did. And uh, Pliny was in charge of all that. And he did such a fabulous job. The emperor made him uh, the governor of Pontus and Bithynia, which are mentioned in the Bible. They're in uh, the northern part of what is now modern Turkey, bordering the Black Sea. And they were in economic shambles. And uh, the emperor, Roman, the old Roman emperor Trajan, who is one of the, remembered as one of the great emperors, a good emperor, but he's a, he's a persecutor. Um, he sends Pliny off to take care of matters. And Pliny's going around all the major towns, and he comes to one town. And uh, while he's interviewing people, he finds out there has been an economic slump. Nobody's going to the temple. And the people who raised animals for animal sacrifice at the temple are losing their livelihood. And as he inquires further, he finds out, oh, it's because of these Christians. And so he goes around starting to arrest a number of Christians. And as he does so, people figure, ah, okay, I've, I've always disliked uh, Brutus down the road. And they start to put up signs, Brutus is a Christian. And people start getting arrested who are Christians because they're hoping maybe, they, maybe they'll bump them off and whatever, and, and I can get rid of the guy. And uh, so it becomes a real problem. People denouncing others uh, secretly, which is against Roman law. 
one of the good things about Roman law was if somebody accused you of something, they had to face you in court. They couldn't accuse you and you could get prosecuted. If the, uh, the, the accuser wasn't there in court, the, the case would be dropped. And um, so he's in, a, he's, a bit, he's, a, he's in a bit of a pickle. We're going to read the letter, but I'm giving you background so you understand what's going on in the letter. Now, when he's in, the one other thing, when he's in the uh, courtroom and people are Christians, he'll ask them three times, are you a Christian? And he'll bring out statues of the gods and a statue of the emperor. And he actually uses different words in the Latin for the statue of the gods and the statue of the emperor. And um, when the emperor writes back to him, he'll actually say, it's a good thing to test these people with the statues of the gods. He says nothing about his own statue, which is intriguing. But if you persist that I am a Christian, after three uh, questions, you answer all of them in the affirmative, then he said, I executed them. And um, at that point, they're guilty. And I mentioned this, I believe, last time. They're guilty of the Latin phrase contumacia, C-O-N-T-U-M-A-C-I-A, C-O-N-T-U-M-A-C-I-A, contumacia. There is a word in English, contumacy. Anybody used that recently? (laughs) Or contumacious. If I say to you, man, you're contumacious. It means you're obstreperous. Anybody use that one recently? <laughs> you're, just a, you're just an ordinary individual, pig-headed and stubborn. Contumacia is a, is a capital offense. When a Roman official tells you something and you say, go fly a kite, no. And he said, when he tells you, sacrifice to these images, are you a Christian? And you persist in that affirmation and won't sacrifice to the gods, you're guilty of contumacia, and he can execute. But he has a problem, because some of these people, he finds out the Christians didn't really do anything bad, and some of these people, like he's executing people for contumacia, but is he also executing them for being Christians? Because some of these people had been Christians and given it up three years, 20 years earlier, they're the ones, he hasn't executed them. And so he's writing to the emperor, really, what should I do with these people? Please note, it's quite clear he is not writing the emperor to find out should he not have executed these people. (laughs) That would be too late. I know it's not funny at all. But he's chopped their heads off. Like, if the emperor writes back, no, no, that was wrong, he's in a real pickle. So he's not asking about that. He, He knows the emperor would affirm that. But what about these people? Like, why am I arresting these people if they're Christians? If I find out they're not doing anything wrong, and I've executed some of them, but what about people who were? It's similar. I often use this parallel. God forbid you're a you're an axe murderer, serial killer, and you have but you haven't done it for thirty years. Like thirty years ago, you were really into serial murder, and you killed five or six people, never got caught. Now, if you got caught now, right? 30 years later, it will not avail your case. Okay, yeah, that was another me. I was another life. I, I stopped doing that 30 years ago, right? It is not going to avail you. I mean, we've, we have been putting on Nazi war criminals who are guards in Auschwitz and Dachau, men in their 90s, 
Should we do that? You bet you we should do that. At least I think you should. Um, because of what they, the fact that that was like 70 years ago doesn't diminish the crime. That's okay. All that's background. We will now read the letter. It is my practice, my Lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or form my ignorance? I have never participated in the trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. I've not been, and I've been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one, whether the name itself, even without offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. Meanwhile, in the case of those who are denounced to me as Christians, I've observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy, that's contumacia, surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order to them to be transferred to Rome. That's because uh, a Roman citizen could only be tried by the emperor, technically. Soon accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were, uh, they were had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer of incense, wine to your image, which had already been brought for this purpose together with the statues of the gods, and moreover, curse Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. Others named by the informant declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting they had been, but had ceased to be, some three years before us, others many years, some as much as 25 years. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. They asserted, however, the sum and substance of their falter era had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, not to, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, nor to falsify their, their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary innocent food. Even this they affirmed they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with the instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you because, because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also both sexes are and still will, are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, that the established religious rites, long neglected, are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, which until now very few purchasers could be found. Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. That's the whole letter. And uh, you can see very clearly the, the context in which a number of these early Christians uh, died. From his point of view, your refusal to do so is, as I said, it is a, is a violation of Roman authority. Uh, as he investigates it, uh, th these people really aren't up to anything. I mean, 
you know, they gather, they make some moral, uh, dis- moral commitments. They have food, probably a reference to the Lord's table. Um, they're not really doing anything. It's just excessive superstition. Um, he doesn't see any reason why, uh, in one sense, these people have actually committed a crime. Uh, except for their refusal to deny Christ. But that refusal to deny Christ is the essence of Christianity. And a real Christian couldn't do that. And so really, when it comes down to it, why are they being executed? They're being executed because they're simply, because they're Christians. If they hate me, they will hate you. And they'll hate you for no reason. And you see the fulfillment in part in, those, in, the, in this actual text. Um, it's, a, it's a disturbing text in some way. Trajan does write back, and he says, everything you've done is good. But he says, I don't want any investigations going on. We're not going to accept uh, anonymous denunciations. If somebody's uh, going to denounce somebody, they have to appear in court. But I don't want you to search for Christians. But if they're denounced and proven to be Christians, yeah, you can execute them. Uh, One early Christian writer named Tertullian, who we'll talk about later in uh, our time together, will say, okay, so let me me get this straight. So um, on the one hand... Christians are not to be searched for, which means that really we haven't committed a crime. But if we are arrested, then you execute us. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. And uh, he'll perceive the, the logical fallacy uh, in Trajan's uh, legislation. Um, <clears throat> this is a disturbing text, as I said, because if you read through the whole letters of Pliny, which I've done, He's a really nice guy. But it, being a nice guy, you can find yourself an enemy of God. Let me move on from this. Yeah, a question. So, yeah, uh, the information about this tree uh, was part of the Apple construction uh, in Roma, in Rome, sorry. Uh, but. Uh, is the same guy that they write this letter, or for example, I have a confusion between Caius Plinius the second and Caius Plinius the youngest. Yeah, it's the younger. Yeah, the uh, uh, Caius Plinius the the, the, the there's two. The elder is a, a scientist, and he perished in the the uh, eruption of Vesuvius because the the Plinies uh, that they had a a, a, a cottage. <laughs> they had a villa on the Bay of Naples, and they're around the bay, and they're at the villa, and they see the, the, they see the, the, the Vesuvius erupt. And the elder, we know all this because Pliny wrote a letter, the other, the other famous letter of Pliny. The elder, who's a scientist, the one you're referring to, he said, i got to go see what's happening. And so he takes a boat over, and um, he perishes on the beach <clears throat> because he's asthmatic and all of the fumes. Yeah. So it's the same guy. It's the same. It's the same. Yeah. It's his. It's his nephew. Okay. The second letter is a hundred years later, and this is now Perpetua, and this is now written. This is her account, and um, this also has a poignancy in it, um, because you'll see that uh, she will uh, struggle with her father's response to her conversion. 
Um, again, some background. Um, 200 years or 100 years later, uh, in the year uh, 200, a persecution breaks out in North Africa in the town of Carthage. I'm sure the name is familiar to you. It's the town of Tunis in Tunisia. Um, if you go to Tunis, uh, two of my students actually were just there uh, for a two-week uh, 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 course. And uh, the ruins of old Carthage are on the outskirts of the, the modern city of Tunis. And you can actually see the amphitheater in which she died, Perpetua, and you can see well, almost definitely the, where she was held as a prisoner. Um, that much has remained. And the emperor um, at the time was Septimius Severus. He was an African. He'd become emperor in 193. And on a trip back to North Africa, he published an edict. And it's not clear whether the edict was empire-wide. If so, it was the first time that there was an empire-wide persecution of the church. Up until this point, every persecution had been local. So the one in, in Rome in 64 with Nero was just Rome. Uh, this one that we read about with Pliny was just in that area of Pontus and Bithynia. And uh, the one in North Africa that we're going to look at, it's, I think it's local. And I think the, the, the first empire-wide persecution we'll look at at the end of the, our time together with Cyprian in 249. Um, Septimius Severus was a particular devotee of a number of um, uh, uh, not traditional gods, one of them Serapis, uh, an Egyptian god, and <coughs> it would appear his presence in North Africa initiated a persecution. Um, Wibia Perpetua, in fact we know both of her names, indicates she's upper class. Um, she's almost definitely senatorial class, very wealthy background. Uh, she can read and write Greek and Latin. Her father has taught her Greek and Latin. And in fact, the account you're going to read is one of the longest accounts written by a woman in the ancient world. Um, one of the things that, given the way women's history has become a major part of the historical world, um, it's problematic doing women's history in the ancient world because most, nearly all the texts we have are written by men. Even when we hear women's voices, it's written through a man's voice. But here we're going to hear a woman's voice directly. And uh, it's a diary she kept in prison. I'll read the text and then I'll... Actually, why don't I read portions and I'll make comments on them as we go along. So a number of young catechumens. These are people who are become Christians, but they've not yet been baptized. Normally there was a year between embracing the gospel and baptism. A number of young catechumens were arrested. Rowakatus and his fellow slave, Thalikatas, Sataninus and Secundulus, and with them, Wibia Perpetua, a newly married woman of good family and upbringing. Her mother and father were still alive, and one of her two brothers was a catechumen like herself. By the way, there's no mention at all of a husband. There's no husband at all. He never appears. Um, either he's dead. I think he's dead. Um, or he left her when she became a Christian. Um, otherwise, it's very hard to explain why he isn't there. It sounds to me she's living back with her husband. Or sorry, her father. Which is standard practice. When a woman, didn't matter what her rank, normally, if her husband died, she went back to live with her father if he was still living. 
because he's very much, he acts like he's still an authority over her. So I think her husband's dead. But he's not mentioned. She was about 22 years old and had an infant son at the breast. Now from this point on, the entire account of her ordeal is her own, according to her own ideas and the way that she herself wrote it down. While we were still under arrest, she said, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, said I, do you see this vase here, for example, a water pot or whatever? Yes, I do, said he. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. At this, my father was so angered by the word Christian that he moved towards me as though he had plucked my eyes out. But he left it at that and departed, vanquished along with his diabolical arguments. For a few days afterwards, I gave thanks to the Lord that I was separated from my father and I was comforted by his absence. So she's in prison. During these few days, I was baptized. And how she got baptized in prison, we don't know. And I was inspired by spirit not to ask for any other favor after the water, baptism that is, but simply the perseverance of the flesh. A few days later, we were lodged in the prison, and I was terrified as I had never before been in such a dark hole. What a difficult time it was. With the crowd, the heat was stifling. Then there was the extortion of the soldiers, and the crown all, I was tortured with worry for my baby there. Then Tertius and Pomponius, those blessed deacons who tried to take care of us, bribed the soldiers to allow us to go to a better part of the prison to refresh ourselves for a few hours. Everyone then left that dungeon and shifted for himself. I nursed my baby who was faint from hunger. In my anxiety, I spoke to my mother about the child. I tried to comfort my brother, and I gave the child in their charge. I was in pain because I saw them suffering out of pity for me. These were the trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once, I recovered my health, relieved as I was of my worry and anxiety over the child. My prison had suddenly become a palace, so I wanted to be there rather than anywhere else. So she makes a distinction between the prison and the dungeon she was in. So it seems she was imprisoned, but the dungeon was a place with no windows. And that's usually the, that's the place that appears to have survived over the 2,000 years. A few days later, there was a rumor that we were going to be given a hearing. My father also arrived from the city, warmed the worry, and he came to see me with the idea of persuading me. Daughter, he said, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to be you, called your father. If I have favored you above all your brothers, if I've raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you're gone. Give up your pride. It'll destroy us, all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. So there's no mention of a husband at all. I, as I say, I think he's dead. And he's not in the picture at all. Um, what he's emphasizing here is, I mean, he's, he's a man of stature and uh, standing in the community. Uh, that's obvious because of her, her own uh, background in terms of her wealth. If she persists in being a Christian, it'll all be all over the city. He will not be able to show his face in the public square anymore. No, it's, the Roman world, like parts of our world, not North America, but parts of our world operated on a much different axis than we do. The, the axis of this world is shame and honor. That's not our world at all. Our world is life and death, not shame and honor. That, this world is shame and honor. That's why in uh, Roman society, if you, were, if you as a Roman male were brought in a position of shame, many of them would kill themselves. It was regarded as a noble death rather than go on, uh, being, going on being a reproach, in, uh, a living reproach. And so that's what he's talking about here. 
I mean, if, if people get if it gets around that you persisted in being a Christian, we'll all be marked with that, and we'll all be so ashamed, we won't be able to go up and speak publicly to anybody. This is the way my father spoke out of love for me. Kissing my hands, throwing himself down before me. Now please note, this will come up again. A Roman father never did this. A Roman father commanded his daughter to do what was right, and she obeyed him. I know if you remember, Jesus said, um, I've got come to bring peace, but a sword. Father against son, mother against daughter. And sometimes because of the state of the way our culture has gone with family, we don't think of that other side of the gospel. The gospel does do remarkable things in families, but the gospel also divides families. With tears in his eyes, he no longer addressed me as his daughter, but as a woman. I was sorry for my father's sake, because he alone of all my kin would be unhappy to see me suffer. I tried to comfort him, saying, It'll all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure we are not left to ourselves, we're all in his power. And he left me in great sorrow. That little line there, um, <clears throat> I often, if I, I, I teach a course on North African Christianity, and we end with Augustine. And uh, when we get to Augustine, we're, we're in the world of the sovereignty of God's grace and uh, God's power and glory. And I point back, I remember, remember the line in the martyrdom account where she says, we're all in his power. In other words, before you get to Augustine, there's already a long history of this emphasis of the sovereignty of God. We're not left to our own uh, devices, as it were. One day while we were eating breakfast, we were suddenly hurried off for a hearing. We arrived at the forum. And as I said, you can still see this uh, uh, part of the Roman ruins outside of Tunis. And straight away, the story went about the neighborhood near the forum, and a huge crowd gathered. And uh, this, is this will be typical of uh, the North American world and the European world down to probably the 1800s. Um, it's entertainment, right? Nobody, nobody's got, uh, nobody's got, you know, nobody's got, there's no, there's no, unless there's sports, uh, but you don't, have, you don't have TVs, whatever, and this would be a, something to do. We walked out to the prisoner's dock. All the others, when questioned, admitted their guilt, that is, they were Christians. When it, then when it came to my turn, my father appeared to my son, dragged me from the set, and said, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. Helerianus, by the way, we know because of other texts outside this text, we know that Helerianus was a hardcore uh, idolater. The gods were very important to him. And there was no way he was going to let anybody get away with uh, denying uh, the, the, the respect that he thought was due to the gods. Helerianus, the governor, who had received the judicial powers as the successor of the late proconsul Minucius Dominianus, said to me, Have pity on your father's great head. Have pity on your infant sacrifice. Offer the sacrifice to the welfare of the emperors. And what that means is, when she was to go up to a, uh, it would be a, um, a basin with coals in it, and he, she would be given some incense and simply throw it on the basin. Didn't matter whether she believed any of it. And from his point of view, like, what's the matter with you? you you're Christian. Like, it's no big deal. Who cares if you really believe in any of this? Just do it. It's your civic duty as a citizen of the state. Offer the sacrifice of the offering of Hermes. I will not, I retorted. Are you a Christian? Said Larianus. And I said, yes, I am. 
When my father persisted in trying to dissuade me, Hilarion ordered him to be thrown to the ground and beaten with a rod. Like, okay, at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this seems to be backwards. Like, he's trying to get her to sacrifice the gods. Why is he, why is he, why is he, uh, Procosa having him beaten? Because he is disgracing himself publicly. He is to be a man, the upper class were to be, were to be marked by gravitas, gravity, decorum, not weeping and flailing and, you know, doing whatever he was trying to do to get his daughter. Like, what? He should just command her. If he, if he is a proper father, he should just command her and she obey him. In other words, he's not the father he should be. He's a disgrace to Roman manhood, and that's why he hasn't beaten. You have to picture the scene. It is, it, it is deep, like reading it as a, as a father and as a son and you know, part of a family as you all are, it is so difficult emotionally. And you could just see the, you probably could feel the conflicted things that would be going on in Perpetua to help her father. But she can't because she's a Christian. When my father persisted in trying to persuade me, Hilarionus ordered to be thrown down to the ground and beaten with a rod. I felt sorry for my father. Just as if I had been beaten, I felt sorry for his pathetic old age. Then Hilarionus passed sentence all of us. We were condemned to the beasts. That is very unusual. And uh, a lot of uh, historians say this is indicative that there is a change in Roman law. As a Roman citizen, she technically should have been sent to Rome and if she wasn't sent to Rome, she should be decapitated with a sword. She should not be put in the arena. Only non-citizens could be done. That could be done. There is a change. There is a, a, a degrading of the law that is going on in the late uh, uh, second century that will continue. That you can do whatever you want to somebody who's a Christian, and it doesn't matter whether they're a citizen or not. That would not have been true back in Pliny's day or in Paul's day. Um. We were condemned to the beasts and we returned to prison in high spirits. Notice the, the contrast. But my baby had got used to being nursed to the breast and staying with me in prison. So I sent the deacon Pomponius straight away to my father to ask for the baby, but my father refused to give him over. But so God willed, the baby had no further desire for the breast, nor did I suffer any inflammation. And so I was relieved of any anxiety for my child and of any discomfort in my breasts. And then at that point, the, the story ends, and the editor takes over, and uh, I'm going to jump down to the final paragraph. You can read the other in between. Um, their witness had so impacted the prison, the, the, uh, the um, head of the prison had become a Christian. A number of people who had come to just kind of gloat had become Christians. And the fast, last paragraph, uh, last two paragraphs, the day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully as though they were going to be going to heaven. With calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetuating along with shining countenance and calm step as the beloved of God, as, the, as a wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. That's an interesting thing, too. Women never looked back at anybody, at men. Uh, a woman always put her eyes down. A, a, a chaste, noble woman would not look directly in the eyes of another man who was not part of her family. That also, the, 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 the reader is saying something there about her, her confidence. Uh, what if, you notice the three dots, I've missed out the whole section. Uh, she's uh, put in the arena and they, they have a wild cow 
attacks her and gores her, but doesn't kill her. And finally, uh, a, a gladiator is brought out, and he must have been a young gladiator because he, he was hesitant, and she actually takes his sword and puts it at her throat to help him uh, cut her throat. And then the, the author says this, Ah, most blessed and valiant martyrs, knows the word. Truly are you called and chosen for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. And any man who exalts, honors, and worships his glory, Christ, should read for the consolation of the church these new deeds of heroism, which are no less significant than the tales of old. For these new manifestations of virtue will bear witness to one and the same Spirit who still operates, and to God the Father Almighty, to His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom is splendor and immeasurable power for all the ages. Amen. And if we had time, we could look at the kind of Benedict, uh, the uh, doxology there, which is Trinitarian, as you can see. So these sort of accounts will be read, um, passed down. I'm not sure how many accounts we have, uh, like how many manuscript accounts from which this translation is taken. Probably not many, maybe two or three. Um, but the, the, the memory of her death was remembered over the years. As I said, Augustine would preach a sermon every anniversary of her death. Uh, in a day when there was no persecution, uh, to remind his flock as to wh what their heritage was. Um, the other day I was reading uh, um, a letter to the editor, I forget the context, and it was written by a Portuguese immigrant to our nation. And uh, she was talking about Canadian history books. And she said, you know, when I read Canadian history books, I mean, none of the people in there are Portuguese. And she says, so it's a real problem. She said, you know, how, how can I identify with Canada? You know, they're all, they're all Anglos, you know, uh, white Anglo-Saxons and obviously some indigenous people and some African uh, Canadians, and, but no Portuguese. And she said, it's a real problem for me to, to, to identify with Canadian history. And I thought to myself, that is a problem. And I'm not primarily a Canadian historian. So I don't have to wrestle with it. But you know, how, do you, how do you help people think about their roots in Canada when their roots in Canada don't look like that at all? Uh, I'm an immigrant, right? Uh, we came in the 60s, and my father was an immigrant uh, from uh, the Middle East. And, um, but as Christians, this, this woman's a North African. She's, a, she's actually African, Berber uh, background. She is part of our body as a fellow believer. Those who have died and preceded us in Christ, we will be with them. She is very much part of our heritage. I don't have to go through a whole thing and, you know, okay, you know, try to convince you that you need to pay attention and think about these people because, you know, they, they've come before us in the life of the church and we have somehow connected. We are connected. Uh, the, 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 as you think about the people of God, there is one people of God, and all of these men and women are our heritage. And uh, remembering the story of Perpetua then is important. Uh, a young woman, 22 years old, who obviously had much to live for. She has a young child, uh, but finds herself making that, that very difficult but ultimate choice that Christ is worth everything. Uh, he is the pearl of great price. And to have him 
is to have all. Let me stop here, ask if there are any questions. Um, and uh, next week I want to talk about apologetics, and we're going to talk about Justin Martyr, uh, a, a writer who was martyred. But we're not going to talk more about his martyrdom, but uh, his apologetics. Peter. Yeah, when you were talking, it, it really struck me how little has changed in the very areas that you're talking about. Athenia, Istanbul, Pontus, you know, the Black Sea coast, and the ambivalence of the government, the pressure of families, um, the regionalism of it all. It's exactly, like I'm, I'm almost seeing flashbacks, the low-grade fear that every Christian lives with all the time. Um, it's, 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 Exactly what you're describing today in Turkey. Yeah, 2,000 years later. Of course, there is that long period in between when you would have had uh, Christian profession, but since the Ottoman Turks, yeah. Uh, Was there any any response from Trajan to these? Yes, there is. Yeah, he he has a letter. You can probably look it up online. It's letter 10.97. It's a very brief response. He basically says, what you did was good. But he says, he doesn't say anything about his image. He says, when you're questioning, just bring out the statues of the gods. But he said, I don't want anybody, I don't want you searching for Christians. That's not the spirit of our age. Yeah, you could see. The persecution against the Christian was not too hard. If we compare with the... Um, well, Christians still were executed. But yes, yes, in the sense that Christians were not being sought out. Uh, it would appear that Perpetua was denounced and probably as a result of a search. And um, in, the, in the years that follow, Christians are searched for. And the Roman Secret Service uh, would know who Christians were, uh, where they met, and they would often be, therefore, easily arrested in that, because of that. At the time of her death, um, how large would you say the body of Christians in North Africa? Oh, wow. Um, okay, so uh, around forty, you've got a few thousand, maybe ten or fifteen thousand. Um, Population of the Roman Empire is about 70 million. I'm not sure how many are in North Africa. Uh, by the time you get to 300, there's about between 7 and 10 million Christians. So in 250 years, from a few thousand to upwards, I would say conservative, about 7 or 8 million. In North Africa, there might have been two or 3,000 in Carthage. Carthage is about 100,000 people. So it's a world in which everybody knows. They would all have known each other. Um, there's a lot of Christians in Egypt. Alexandria is, is filled with them. Um, North Africa is a very strong Christian area. There are villages in Egypt, this is hard to believe now, villages in Egypt which would be 60-70% Christian by 300. Um, but I'm not sure exactly at the time of her death how many Christians there would have been. The Christian community probably would have been half a dozen house churches, uh, maybe more. In in um, in Carthage, uh, we, Tertullian's alive at this time. He never mentions her, which is very interesting because he's very interested in martyrs. 
and why he doesn't mention her is, is, is striking. Yes? So are a lot of Christians fleeing Rome altogether or leaving? No, no, there's, you know, there's really, uh, there's nowhere where you can flee. You'd have to leave the Roman Empire. And um, that's unthinkable to a lot of Romans. So Christians would, periods of time, Christians would go into hiding. So I was just, I don't know if Peter has ever seen this in Cappadocia, what the old Cappadocia, the, the caves, the underground cities. Uh, there's an underground city built in uh, central Turkey that could house up to 20,000 people. So I couldn't believe it. I was looking at pictures of it yesterday. So these will be built during times of persecution. In Rome, you have the catacombs, which where a number of the Christian dead are buried, but also are places of hiding. Um, yeah, I mean, you could flee into the countryside because it's unlikely that you're going to be able to be searched out. But again, that becomes a big issue. If there's persecution, should I flee or not? And Tertullian says, absolutely not. No way, ever. And uh, Cyprian, who follows Tertullian, says, of course, if God leads you to, to flee, that's, that's fine. You just don't deny Christ when you're arrested. Um, and he builds his case on Jesus' statement, if they persecute in one city, flee to the next. And uh, so, yeah, I don't, we don't, you, um, we have some examples of people fleeing, um, but uh, not tons. Some people would go into the Egyptian desert uh, to escape. Yeah, the letter mentions uh, the deacons, uh, Tertius and Pomponius. Yep. Would that have been like a role of a deacon to support those Christians who were in prison at the time? Yeah. Yeah, so they hadn't been arrested, so they would come down to the prison, which would mean they'd risk arrest. Like, what are you guys up to? Who are you? Why are you visiting these people? So they would be risking arrest. So, but yeah, that would be a role of a deacon to help those in prison. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's meaning catechumen? Catechumen. Um, it comes from a Greek word, uh, catechesis. Uh, it means teaching. A catechumen is a person who is being taught. So normally when you were, became a Christian, you were not baptized immediately. So to become a member of a local church, you had to be baptized as a believer. Uh, you are not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. You are not even allowed to see the Lord's Supper until you are baptized. And you could not be baptized until you've been taught for between nine months to 12 months. And the reason for that is most of these people are coming out of a non-Jewish background. They're coming out of a world, people with gods, the idea that the world's eternal, no moral system. And so basically that's, okay, do you know what you've embraced as a Christian? Here's what, here's what it means to be a Christian. And they'd go through the whole uh, basic understanding of who God is, what he has done in our Lord Jesus Christ, scriptures, and the moral life that is now expected of you. And so that's that period of teaching. Um, so. so would that be where the word catechism comes from? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So catechism is a teaching tool. So the early church has catechisms. Um, the Reformation had them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the catechism is a good tool, very good tool. How did this develop? Because in the book of Acts, people were baptized on the same day. Yep, they're all Jews. Is it because they were Jewish? Yeah. So when a Jew gets baptized, like, okay, they believe in the God of the scriptures. There's one God made all things. 
They've got the view of history as beginning, as an end. Uh, the Holy Scriptures, I mean, the whole moral structure of the Old Testament. <laughs> All they have to do now is embrace that the Messiah is, is, is our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead. A pagan embraces the gospel. Well, that's a completely different story. Even with a lot, you know, like the, uh, uh, the one that is striking is the Philippian jailer. But a lot, Cornelius, he's a, he's a God-fearer. He's been going to the synagogue. He's basically embraced Judaism. The only thing that's held him back is circumcision. A lot of Gentiles embraced Judaism, but they weren't full members because circumcision was just abhorrent to them. Um, but the Philippian jailer is the exception. But the norm as you move outside the Jewish world is the whole catechumenate, which I think is... Absolutely, we need to do it today. Um, I, I remember, I remember very vividly being in a classroom with uh, a heritage 30 years ago and um, 30, 40 students. So we were going through women in the, the early church and I said, okay, I've got in mind's eye a woman, uh, early part of the gospel accounts. She's a widow. She's been a widow 50, 60 years. She's in the temple. Who am I talking about? Blank, complete blank faces. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? Forest of hands go up. Who am I talking about? Complete biblical Ill illiteracy. Oh, it's Anna. Oh, yeah. And, um, I mean, that's people in the church, let alone people who are coming in from, from the world. So I think the whole idea of a catechumenate where people are taught, this, this is what you've embraced. You've had some experience, which is great, but now this is the gospel. Here's what it entails in belief structure, moral structure, etc. This is the worldview that underlies Christianity, etc. I think that's very important. So. Okay, we will uh, look to see you next week. Next week, as I said, what we're going to look at is apologetics, uh, defending the faith, and we're going to look at it with just a martyr. Okay? Let me uh, pray as we close. Again, our Father, we thank you for the witness of this young woman that does speak across the years, the centuries. And we thank you for the grace that you gave her that speaks of the grace that is readily available to us day by day. Uh, enable us in our dis very different situations to be bold for you and to stand for Christ and to love him above all things. And we remember our brethren, as has uh, been mentioned, in the Middle East and other parts of this globe, that you might be with them at this hour, and you might give them grace and strength and peace, and use their lives to be a witness to unbelievers who you can bring to Christ through their faith and their lives. Be with us now, this night, and throughout the week, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.